Hello, good afternoon, and welcome to episode three of the Run Things podcast. Uh, Kev here. Eventually, we will have some sort of intro music, but Claire hasn't pulled a finger out and done anything about that yet. I think mainly the reason she hasn't done anything about it is because she is swanning off in Malaysia doing bugger all. Um, So I'm in charge of podcasting today. Um, and I'm going to be recording with the wonderful Helen, who I'm going to tell you an awful lot more about in just a while. But before then, say hello to Claire, everyone. I love that you've just slagged me off on the start of the podcast and everyone's going to think that I'm not here. And, and here I am. Well, you're, um, so you're literally yeah. not here, though. <laughs> you should at least be putting on some sort of crappy satellite delay. <laughs> I am not there. I am currently stood outside um, on top of a hill in Malaysia, looking at uh, the lightning. So, you know, you said to me just a moment ago that you've been on a sky bridge and I pointed out that technically all bridges are in the sky and therefore you've just been on a bridge. I mean, this one was, I was in a cloud, so that's pretty high up in the sky. I don't think most bridges go quite that high but yes technically all bridges are in some sort of sky Great. I guess. another point for me excellent um okay well i've only called you really to test out that i know how this equipment works but i thought it would be a great opportunity <laughs> to also record a bit of an intro with you for the podcast um so how's malaysia and how's the running out there <laughs> oh you're so mean um <laughs> Malaysia is is lovely. Uh, food is is great. People are lovely. Weather is very very sweaty. Um, so the running is virtually non-existent, really, um, because it's so hot and so humid. And I'm just being really lazy. So I, I've done all of about uh, probably seven k since I got here. Five um, k of which was on a private island. So that's that's pretty cool. Ooh, private island. Ooh, I'm so important. Ooh. Um... Here's an, an actually interesting question because I've, I've done similar in that I've run in Thailand and the humidity is horrendous. Um, do, mm. do Malaysians run much? Have you seen many kind of recreational runners out? I've seen um, more than I expected, actually. And every time I see one, I feel massively guilty. But they tend to like have their shirts off and could just be running to like catch a bus or something like that. I'm not convinced that they're actually um, running for pleasure. Um, what, what, <laughs> hold on, hold on, is, hold on, um, hold on, hold on. What does <laughs> running with your shirt off have to do with running for a bus? Like I've been to Brighton, they have a lot of buses. and I... There were two independent thoughts, I think, that just came out of my head at the same time. But yeah, maybe like if you're running late, to catch your bus and you're just too hot and you don't want to get your nice work shirt sweaty you take it off I don't know <laughs> brilliant okay well like you know um, but, two in the morning in Brighton I have seen some people chasing buses with their shirts off but it's, it's not because of the humidity <laughs> what I was going to say is there is a night marathon in um, Penang in November which sounds really cool when you run across the Penang grid and it starts at 1am because of the temperatures so that sounds pretty cool so people obviously do run here it's an early start yeah yeah it is or a late start depending on shirts off buses on (laughs) anyway um you're wasting my podcast time i just really wanted to see that the volume levels are okay so um i'm gonna say goodbye to you now and um have a safe journey back and i will see you later in the week yeah it was nice nice to chat great all right bye claire So here we are, episode three of the Run Things podcast. Um, We haven't yet been thrown off either iTunes or uh, or Spotify, which is good news. And some people have even rated us fairly highly. 
Um, so thanks for that, Mum. Um, today is the first proper um, podcast that we're recording, and by proper, I mean that uh, we're talking to a person who we don't know, um, and we've managed to convince someone who, uh, well, sounds, because I haven't spoken to her before, but sounds like she's done something absolutely incredible in the past. Um, and again, we're going to go through the whole conversation element of this. Um, for those of you that are new to the podcast, the way this works is really simple, and it's that I will be asking a bunch of questions of someone I've never met before, and we're going to see what their life is like, was like, and what's happened during that life um, to make them who they are. That's the entire premise of what we do here at Run Things. We use exercise and mental health as a vehicle to find out about ordinary people who have done extraordinary things. One of those people is um, Helen Langridge, um, who we uh, got in touch with via Twitter um, to uh, to discuss. Um, well, I'm not going to ruin it, actually. I'm just going to say hello to Helen. Hello. How are you? I'm really well, thank you. How are you? Not bad, thank you. Not bad. Good. A decent Sunday so far. Are you uh, concerned about going to work tomorrow or are you more of a... No. <laughs> <laughs> Thankfully, I love my job, so um, I'm pretty lucky in that department. Uh, excellent. Well, I'm not going to ask you what you do yet, because I'm going to ask you that in about 30 seconds' time, if you don't <laughs> mind. Um, so we're going to set the stall out, first of all, if you don't mind, Helen. Um, first of all, could you give us your full name? Yep, my name's Helen Langridge. And how old are you, if you don't mind me asking? I am turning 30 in about three weeks. Oh, how do you feel about that? I'm, I'm, I'm pretty confident. I'm, I think I'm doing all right. I'm doing all right. Oh, you're one of those overly positive people. I hate you already. <laughs> <laughs> when I turned 30, I was utterly miserable. So hat off to you. Um, I'm still alive, so it can't be that bad. Um, That's true. That's true. And uh, where are you from, Helen? And do you still live in the place where you grew up? Mm, well, I grew up in a small town called Deal near Dover in Kent. And now I live in Edinburgh, so not even remotely close to oh, where well, I grew up. One of my close friends is from Deal, as it goes, and she's not really? not far off your age. So how about that? Um, uh, oh, my goodness. You have to tell me his name after. Yeah, oh, yeah I, I will. Well, I'll tell you all sorts of stories. Anyway, um, definitely not for a podcast. Um, so how come you're in Edinburgh? Um, it's a brilliant part of the story, really. I moved to... London for university and then I moved to Glasgow through my job and then that's where I met my husband and it's just kind of where we settled now oh. with work it's just we, we like it it's really really nice my city I always thought there was a rule where people who have lived in Glasgow aren't allowed to live in Edinburgh just like Cardiff and Swansea sort of thing and yeah. Liverpool and Manchester it is like that isn't it? it's pretty partisan yeah you're meant to only like one or the other yeah. So which I one like do you both like more? For reasons. <laughs> um, I think Edinburgh is more for me, but I do love the sort of community friendly feel of Glasgow. I do miss that a little bit. Yeah, got but, yeah. Um, yeah. Excellent. And uh so you've you've obviously smart, you've been to university. What do you do? Mm, I now do something that's completely unrelated to my degrees. <laughs> my undergraduate degree was in Egyptology, so I can translate some hieroglyphics for you if you like. <laughs> Uh, completely pointless. And then I did a master's in forensic archaeological science so I can pick up dead bodies. But now I work in uh, the outdoor industry for a startup company that does outdoor marine animal work. Oh, okay. Um, so Egyptology, I mean, that doesn't necessarily lead to a career, does it? You know, there's, there's not, no. I don't see many adverts in the back of the local paper saying Egyptologist required. What made you want to do it? 
I was really sick of being taught how to pass exams when I did my GCSEs and A-levels. I wanted to do something for the love of the subject without really much forward planning about where that would take me. So I ended up doing that uh, at UCL. And um, my final year, I took a module in um, mummification and tumour remains. And that's how I got really interested into the forensic anthropology side of sort of nothing related to Egyptology, but really applicable. And then I couldn't get a job. So, (laughs) yay. (laughs) I mean, this is like... Um, I mean, I'm going to bore anyone else that's listening to this, but my job is in university recruitment, or at least my proper job is. So I'm always really intrigued by what makes people do what they do. And, you know, yeah. I mean, I'm assuming that as an Egyptologist, you just really liked wingdings as a font on Microsoft <laughs> Word when you were younger, right? And that's what got you into it. Definitely, definitely, yeah. Uh, well, 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 um, I mean, that, that's amazing. Then. And, and now you're at a startup company doing something completely different. What's that? Uh, the company's called Findra, and they sponsored me. Well, they didn't sponsor me fully. They, they donated some clothing to the trip that I went on on the bike. Um, and then when I came back, I'd kept in contact, obviously. Um, and it kind of all worked out that they were looking for someone to do the social media and some of the marketing and work in the, their Edinburgh shop. When um, just as I was coming back from the big trip, and my trip, and I had their money, and we were unemployed, so it just all worked out really well with really good timing. And it's I've joined them because I really want to. I believe in the brand and it's a completely different reason to take a job. It's not like the subject matter that's important. It's about my skills and how, how I like the company. I worked for companies before who it was just a job and this feels more like I have real direct input and my input day to day matters. And I felt like that was way more important right now in my life at what point I'm at than just kind of earning money and going to work each day and coming home and, hating my job I, I actually look forward to Mondays and that's really nice yeah I mean it, it's literally like a nine-to-five grind otherwise isn't it and you yeah know, it's that balance yeah. between living to work and working to live and all of that sort of thing I totally get it w- what is it about the business though that makes you feel like that as opposed to you know I mean don't name the other places that you've worked but why is it yeah. different I think it's because it's such a small company and um, they started out with this ethos of encouraging women of all ages and all kind of backgrounds to be getting outside and feeling good about what you're doing through what you're wearing. It's not like um, you're wearing men's clothing that's shrunk and made pink. It's like it's actually designed for women and it's merino wool. It's great product. It's the perfect fabric. And they, they've now branched into menswear, so it's not just about women focused. But I just really love the ethos of the brand and their values. And... Um, I just didn't want to go back to the job I was doing before, which was very much like a production line. And I didn't, I mean, it was, that job was part of the reason why uh, I went on my bike ride, not like the whole reason, but it was easy to leave is my yeah. point. So it, I just really wanted some to work somewhere that I was valued and I really am valued. So it's, it's makes a big difference to me mentally as well. I think I really uh, learned that about myself. I think ethos really kind of sets places and people out, doesn't it? As you know, yeah. kind of making them stand out in a field. And interestingly, going back to the women's wear thing, and don't worry, this podcast shoots all over the place all of the time. Um, but <laughs> I, I read a fantastic thread um, this week by a guy called I think it's forgive me if it, the name is wrong, Tom, but Tom Fairbrother or Tom Fairchild or something like that. Um, mm-hmm. I think he's at Fairboy Runs on uh, Twitter. 
And it was basically a man apologising to women for all sorts of things, you know, not uh, women not running as far or men not running as short a distance across country and stuff like that. And one of the things he brought up was an apology for women basically having to wear smaller versions of men's tops after races yes. because they're not made oh, for I men. Oh, I saw that. Yeah, yeah. So yeah. it was a brilliant thread. And I was like, I mean, I felt terrible for being, uh, frankly, a middle class white man reading it. But I totally <laughs> got on board with what he was saying. So it, it, yeah, it well, sounds it's like that. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And it sounds like, you know, there are startup companies like this who we really, really need to be supporting, don't we? Rather than going to the huge brands and worrying about what influencers are telling us and stuff, we actually need to find exactly. stuff that fits with us both physically and, and mentally properly. Exactly. No, I, and that's exactly why I took the job and love working there because I feel like, well, we get feedback from customers all the time saying how inspired they are by by stuff that I write and sort of blogs that I do and newsletters that we send out and, and just the brand makes them feel really good about themselves, which helps them actually just perform like day to day, not not necessarily yeah. as an athlete, but just our clothing is can be worn running and cycling, yet also in the pub or at the theatre. So it's just... Yeah, no. just, now just, you're talking as well. It. Running here in the pub is, is absolutely ideal for me. Um, yeah. Well, Before we move on then, because I, I do want to talk to you about uh, the stuff that I'm meant to be talking to you about, because otherwise Claire's going to tell me off. <laughs> um, give us a, a web address or a contact detail or something like that where people can find out more, because it sounds absolutely ideal. Uh, for the clothing? Yes. Yes, it's Findra, uh, clothing. Well, is it Dutch Credit it's, the company's called Findra. Sorry, I really should know the web address. But it's FindraClothing.co.uk, I think, or .com. Oh, my goodness. FindraClothing.com. So if you Google, oh, Google well, Findra Clothing and, and they'll get there. Yeah, that, that will come up. I'm so sorry. To <laughs> yeah. If we find out next week that you've been fired because of that, then they're obviously not a great company. Um, we're, we're on all the social media with at Findra Clothing, so there you go. There we go. And, and you will be in charge of those. So if nothing else, people can just come and say hello to you. Exactly. Excellent. Yeah. Okay, so um, let's move on to the to the actual stuff because we build this as the longest fifteen minutes of your life, and um, <laughs> it is going to be like that because we're already ten minutes in, and we haven't talked about anything really to do with you or exercise. Um, so we know a little bit about you. Um, why is exercise important to you, and what types of exercise do you particularly enjoy? Um. Well, I didn't ever start out as um, a particularly sports person, but I found cycling when I was living in London because I had no money. But for some reason, I had a bike, so I started commuting. Um, and that kind of took over my life, and now I'm kind of exploring into running and climbing. Uh, okay. And they're completely new to me. So um, it's really quite strange going from something with cycling that I was quite good at to really struggling at a new thing it's, it's a big mental shift to be used to or try to get used to not performing at sort of like awesome paces for long distances straight off yeah it's big, no matter how answer. good you are at one thing as soon as you yeah. try and do something else your kind of self-belief is up there but physically you get to it and you're like oh this is not how it should be yeah yeah and definitely. You, you can also tell that you're um, approaching 30 if you've taken up climbing because it's such a uh, a 30 year old person's um, <laughs> thing to want to do <laughs> i never knew that Brilliant. yeah all, all of my friends so i'm, I'm only 35 um with the the brain of a 12 year old i think but like 
some of my friends and I have, have been um, fairly regularly and recently because um, we just feel like we want to go back to youth and, you know, being powerful and stuff like that. It doesn't work like that um, for us anyway. Um, so um, so cycling is your thing. And, um, you know, tell us, um, I think we're, we're going to go, like I said, back and forth through life. But tell us what you did and, and why particularly we want to talk to you about this, because the things that you've done and experienced um, cycling are incredible. Oh, well, um I left in April 2017 to cycle as much of the world as I could in the time and money I had. So my, me and my husband, now husband, left uh, Glasgow and we cycled 30,000 kilometres east and then came back to Glasgow in about 17 months. So, you, so you headed east. So t- yeah. take us on a, a two-minute tour country-wise. <laughs> I've got this down, right? So we went to uh, from Glasgow to Newcastle and we got the ferry to Amsterdam and we went north through uh, the Netherlands, Germany, up to Denmark and Stockholm in Sweden, east across the Orland Islands to Finland and Helsinki and then we went south through Estonia, Latvia, Lithuania, uh, Poland, Slovakia, Hungary, Romania, Serbia, Bulgaria, Turkey, Georgia and then I had issues with a little bit of altitude sickness at low levels, and also we had quite a lot of antidepressants with us, and we were worried about getting them into Uzbekistan. So we, instead of doing Central Asia as we planned, we flew to Beijing, and we did three months in China, the coast of Vietnam, Cambodia, Thailand, Malaysia, Singapore, turned back on ourselves and cycled back to Kuala Lumpur. We flew to Perth from Western Australia, Cycled all the way across Australia to Brisbane and then flew to LA, north to San Francisco, where we got married in Yosemite. And then we went east from there to pretty much Quebec City and then flew back to Montreal, up through France and Switzerland, Germany, Luxembourg, Holland, France, back to Dover, and then worked our way back up to Glasgow. Wow. Um, <laughs> I, I don't know where to start because I've got so many questions. Um, so first of all, I'm going to have to tap you up for info on um, uh, San Fran and Yosemite because I'm going in May. So I'm, I'm going to need some more about that. But maybe we'll do that for for just you and I, and not you and okay. no, you and me, not you and I. I always correct Claire on this um, for you and me. Um, so uh, you so you had to change your routes because you were scared of smuggling drugs, effectively. Yes. So, so how, how come get, they've got really strict yeah. laws? Have they? They have really strict laws about what you can take into um, Uzbekistan. So, um, yeah, you can you can take in prescription drugs if you have a prescription or a copy of prescription. But the, we're hearing lots of stories from the border about people finding it difficult and having to do some bribery, and and they really go through your stuff because they don't you don't can't take drones in. Um, lots of these different reasons. Um, whilst we we had you know, we were allowed to have the stuff we had you aren't even allowed to take anything with codeine in so we were just really worried with the, the um, we had like a year and a half worth of lots of prescription stuff but we were just really worried that if they decided to take it off us they could just confiscate it and then we were going cold turkey off antidepressants it just it, it was such a big risk we probably would have been fine but it was just too much of a risk for us to really want to take when it's something that we can now go back and do as a singular sort of through the Premier Highway by ourselves as a one rather than as part of the bigger the bigger trip. So we considered loads of different options flying from 
the capital of Georgia, Tbilisi, to various different places. We were originally going to cycle into Azerbaijan, but we were like, well, if we can fly from Georgia, we don't need to spend the 100 bucks on an Azerbaijan visa, so that would save more money. It's just balanced. We had a really finite uh, amount of money with us, so it was just working out what the best option was, and it turned out to be flying to Beijing, so we did that. (laughs) I mean, of course you did. So I'm, I'm going to throw some um, some kind of quick fire questions at you, and feel free not to answer them if you think it's uh, diving too deep. Um, so uh, I'll start off really easily. Um, so thirty thousand kilometers in how yes. long? Seventeen months. Okay. What was your longest um, single ride, as it were? Um, between sleeps was about one hundred and sixty something kilometers. And uh, how big was your budget? How much did you have to spend in those 17 months? Um, We left with about £18,000, but that had to include all our flights. Wow. So, I mean, in the grand scheme of things, that's a grand a month. And that's, is that between you? Is that right? Between us, between us. Wow. So you had £500 a month each to uh, to fuel yourselves, um, buy flights, pay for visas. Um, I mean, I imagine that you weren't just camping the whole way. You had to pay for accommodation and stuff as well. Various places you had to, or we were just really nervous in like America. We were so nervous about trying to find somewhere, private land to camp, because obviously it's like no trespassing everywhere. So various places like Europe's really expensive comparative to to, like China and Southeast Asia. Australia is horrifically expensive. So we only paid for one accommodation after a really bad day, but we mostly camped in Australia. Yeah, um, it, yeah, it, it completely varied. So, so it felt like we were just not spending any money and it, somehow it just dwindled. But it, it was the flights that were had such a huge chunk out of each each time. Yeah, I mean, the last thing you want to do is kind of get to uh, Georgia or Alabama or somewhere, nearly finish your trip and then get shot by some slack-jawed yokel. Exactly. Um, so, <laughs> yeah, I, I don't blame you for that at all. Um, how many... Uh, pairs sets of tires do you reckon you went through in the journey well i uh went through one and a half and mike my husband went through about five front tires about six back tires he had really bad luck with tires yeah definitely nothing to do with him being heavier and a a worse cyclist (laughs) just because he was very unlucky right very unlucky yeah and what, what was the from your perspective what was the best country that you visited and why china without a doubt it was just so unexpected. We didn't know what to expect. So we we had lots of people tell us, oh, they, they're quite closed off. Quite, you won't get that many people wanting to talk to you. But it was completely the opposite. You, like they couldn't smile enough and take enough pictures of us with us and want to be friends and add us on WeChat and like want to welcome us into their house and feed us and mother us and take care of us and take us out for dinner and get us really drunk. And, and then you've got the countryside itself. Like the, the China is just the most stunning country uh and when we were up in the mountains it was just their workmanship on the the roads they're building uh is just um they just plow through the the bottom of mountains which okay has its downsides but it's just staggering to see and we were so sad to leave but we we were getting towards the end of our visa and we had to crack on so um i can't i just really want to go back i could happily live there it was really bizarre how at home i felt but it was a big surprise I guess it's it's such a humongous country as well, though, isn't it? Mm-hmm. So you know, you could be in um, you know quite literally a hundred different countries within the space of the entirety of China. So you must have seen so many culturally different things whilst being there yeah. as well. Absolutely, 
So all the, all the ethnic minorities that live there have their own style of housing, have their own, they all look a bit different and different ways of speaking and it, it was different kinds of food and oh, the food was amazing. And I, I imagine you were um, <laughs> off the, the tourist trail as well for, you know, for a vast majority of it. So you were seeing, mm-hmm. whether it was China or, you know, wherever, you must have been seeing the real parts of those countries. Yeah, and sometimes that wasn't always a good thing. No, um, tell us more. Why not? Um, you would really see real poverty that you often get hidden. It's hidden from you. From if you're if you're in like Hong Kong, obviously. I mean, there is poverty there, but it's not the same level of like you know, eighty-five, ninety-year-old men and women still working in the fields and 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 drying everything out on on the roads. And it's it's. But then they're they're so happy to see you because for so much of their life they've been closed off from the outside world mm. when it was communism and it's just it was um the joy on their faces just to just to see us there was was really humbling and we just we and we were glad to, to meet these people as well it was it was worked both ways and whilst there's a lot of talk about them gaining a lot of faith within their community for having western friends we were we didn't mind because we were making friends with chinese people yeah. Them, so. yeah it's kind of you know i don't want to sound like one of those do-gooding westerners but it kind of gives you a lot of perspective and and is very humbling i guess yeah but then there were other parts like when we were in thailand we were sleeping on a few beaches like if the beach isn't owned by a resort it is covered in rubbish like the gulf of thailand is just uh just a rubbish dump and it's it was really upsetting sometimes to see that and you you see all over instagram oh look at this amazing beach i'm in kofifi and all these new kosamiri and isn't it beautiful well yeah but just five kilometers up the yeah on the mainland five kilometers up the way it's it's a dump and that's the real sad side of it yeah i've I've been to phuket a couple of times and um it is exactly that the reasons those beaches are absolutely pristine is because they have workers out at 3 a.m um yes. absolutely combing them and, until they look that way so it's, it's not surprising um let's uh, let's talk about disappointment and um kind of you know the, the stuff that um troubled you as well where, where did you not like you you absolutely love china where disappointed you northwest vietnam <laughs> i think it, it might have been because we'd had such a high in china um but we were really not welcome there at all. We get a lot of people shouting swear words at us as we cycle past. We'd get um, just pe- people ignoring us in restaurants or turned away, and people wouldn't want to serve us. Um, people in shops just would disappear if we walked in, and it was just a really um, just not very nice atmosphere. And we would we we kind of sat ourselves down at one point and did a vlog on like, are we are we acting? badly or wrongly to make them react to us in that way and then we were like well, no because sometimes we are literally cycling past someone and they're shouting fuck off us and it's just like that it was just such a shock um did you ever get to the bottom of why that was i think it's just because the north was it just goes back to the vietnam war i think and the south was much more americanized and it's a lot more welcoming and sort of south of da nang we didn't have any problems at all but north it was um that they were the ones who were against the Americans, and it's, I think there's just a lingering feeling right. of not wanting people there, and I, that's really hard to say because then that might judge people. People's perceptions might change if they're planning a holiday out there. But please don't let that. That was really like really rural areas that we had those encounters. Yeah, so it's, I mean, it's, it's the, the thing one. is, as I've 
you know, gotten older and wiser and less egotistical, I've realised that people are welcome to whatever views they want, so long as those views yeah. aren't harmful to me. Um, yeah. But did, were there any points where you felt not just kind of, you know, out of place, but threatened um, or any, you know, I'm looking for a disaster story here, I'll be honest with you, or something where not that you feared for your life, <laughs> but you were like, oh, is this trip worth it? What, you know, did um, you, have you got any of those or is it just all incredible? Yeah, no, no, no. We There was a lot of really, really hard stuff. A lot of that was physical, mental, but um, sort of eastern Turkey, when you were getting towards Kurdistan, sort of that Kurd conflict. There are a lot of um, bullet holes in all the signs, a lot of military presence. I never felt threatened, but you, other cyclists warned you and stuff was passed through all the, the, the internet that you just had to, you couldn't camp. You were just, you were in a bit of danger, just get through as fast as you can. Um, yeah. Some people have been attacked, but I, we never felt that too much. And then the other time, I guess, we was against the weather in Mike nearly died of hypothermia in the American Rockies and that was probably the worst that was the lowest point <laughs> I mean that, that's pretty low as it goes isn't it <laughs> the last thing you want is to go on uh, go on a trip with someone that you're, you're in love with and, and come back without someone that you're in love with for whatever reason yeah. it is. So, and I, we're only married a few weeks <laughs> yeah oh yeah of course because you so tell me about that I mean I, I do want to find out why you went on the trip um, but yeah, yeah tell, tell me about the wedding thing was that just like did it just happen or had you planned it? It was mostly planned. So we, got, we were engaged before we left, uh, but we didn't know where we wanted to get married. We wanted to get married on the trip. And then Mike has a link to Yosemite. He finished a big bike ride there once and went hiking up Half Dome. And quite sweetly, one of his pictures on top of Half Dome was his Tinder profile picture. And that's how we got together. And so we were like, oh, my God, we'll be cycling near Yosemite. That would be absolutely perfect. Um, and then when we were in, like, south china we set the date because we could kind of plan our timing from there and knew how far we could cycle within what time so we got our license for the yosemite park and we figured out where we were going to get married and we invited just biological parents and one friend plus their partner each and we had a friend in america who was a minister and she she did the ceremony for us it was just it was just the best amazing (laughs) so so you were um forgive me here because i've never done the tinder thing swipey righties is that right or is that the wrong way Say again. Swipe, did you swipe right or left? I mean, it doesn't matter. Oh, I, I can't remember now. I think it's swipe. I think it's right. That, that's yeah, that's we very well right. answered. It's like I, I don't I don't need Tinder anymore. It's served its purpose. <laughs> um, that, that's amazing though. So, what was it about him? Was it the fact that he likes cycling, or just that he looked good on the top of a hill? Uh, a bit of everything. There was a lot of like outdoor activity in his profile, and I knew that I wanted that in, in my in my next well future husband, I guess. Um, uh, but he also had on his profile that he wanted to cycle around the world, <laughs> and I had wanted to do it too, but I didn't want to do it on my own. So uh, we actually started planning this on our second date. And well, so and the first was... date must have gone pretty well then. <laughs> yeah, it, it was pretty good. And then we were kind of jokingly talking about it, and then we, on the second date we were like, there's nothing actually stopping us. We both hate our jobs, and we can just save enough money to go. And then... did it that's amazing and i love stories like that because they're all kind of you know it's almost like it should be some sort of rom-com but actually yeah it's it's real life and it's it's a great story for people like me who you've never met right it's a a decent icebreaker yeah absolutely everyone loved it especially in america americans love that they were so into that story yeah they they love the cheese don't they absolutely love it (laughs) um okay so um so you, you started planning it on your, your second date. How far after the second date, you know, because obviously there's quite a lot of planning that's got to go into it, I'd imagine. Yeah, 
Yeah, uh, we left, so that was the end of January 2016, and we left April 2017. So that was as much time as we could kind of need to save as much as we did. Um, so that, yeah, what's that, like 15 months or something? Mm, yeah, I mean, that's, that's still decent saving, if you ask me, to uh, to get to that. Yeah. Um, so you kind of, you said that you've enjoyed cycling, but you were never really a sporty youngster. Is that right, or have I just made no, that up in my yeah. head? No, no, I wasn't really sporty at all when I was younger. Um, I did horse riding and like a little bit of dancing when I was like really, really young. But once I, I was, I kind of turned into a bit of a nerd. I've got to lie, not gonna lie. So, um, and if I wasn't in lectures, I was working in the theatre in like backstage lighting and sound design. So I was proper nerd. Right. Um, but then yeah, it all kind of started out of just having to commute by bike because I had no money, and then. I started seeing a difference in how I felt about myself and the way I view myself and the energy I had in the day. And and I hadn't considered all those physical and mental benefits when I started doing it. But I started, I, well, I started with like a seven mile commute and then it turned into a 13 mile commute and I just started loving it. And then I got hit by a police car and had concussion. <laughs> and I, Sorry. <laughs> I try and gloss over it basically. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. I, it was um, it was it was actually a genuine accident. It was uh, there was a taxi in the way we couldn't see each other, and it wasn't high speed. Um, but I landed on my head, and it gave me a concussion. Right. Um, I mean, this is turning more and more into a rom com like... for me, though. It's just, I mean, I'm, I'm sure your husband is lovely, but I'm so disappointed you didn't then fall in love with the police officer and dr- and I ride know, around the world perfect. with him. Um, yeah. Um, so, so I didn't want to stop cycling after that, and that's how I started doing it aside from commuting basically so tell me about these uh these mental and physical benefits then because you know one of the the things that we at run things are, are massive on is is the link between mental and physical health i think for me one of the things that's difficult to put across is the fact that you can see changes in physical health you can see people have lost weight or put on muscle or you know mm. look happier and stuff like that but you can't always see what it is where you can rarely see what it is mentally that it does for them. So, so what changed in you? I think it started by me feeling more alert during the day, um, having done a really good bout of exercise first thing. And I just started to see my ability that I could do what I'd set out to do. And then I started to turn that into my attitude towards like the everyday and, um, I've, I've struggled with depression most of my life. Um, it's a bit genetic. My parents have both had it. And um, so I think, I guess I'm a bit predisposed to it, but it's um, it, it just lifts me through the endorphins. Like then those natural highs you get make such a difference to, I just, I just feel like I'm more awake and in touch with the world. Yeah, and I, makes, I totally yeah. get that. And you kind of, you almost get a more uh, vivid view of, of what's going on in life. Um, you know, it's, I always see it as, um, I always talk about me in these things <laughs> when I'm meant to be talking about other people, but it's like seeing in HD rather than seeing in an old kind of, you exactly. know, dusty black and white thing. Um, it's interesting exactly. you say about the, the genetic thing. Um, you feel like there's a familial aspect to, uh, to poor mental health, do you? I feel like there's a, there's a possibility of predisposition. It doesn't necessarily mean you will. You, you you're bound to get some kind of mental illness but i think there is like a genetic possibility of being more susceptible to it and do you, do you think that um 
do you think it's a learned thing? You know, I mean, you say both your parents struggled with their mental health. Do you think you grew up in that environment and kind of it became a self-fulfilling prophecy almost? Uh, quite possibly. Um, it's, it's, I'm going through counselling right now myself, so I think it's something that is being explored within my own experience. And I think so. I think growing up, my dad has pretty severe PTSD and my mum had post depression and has gone through that on and off. And I think, um, yeah, if you're brought up in a household where things do struggle and maybe talking about feelings and emotions is, is really hard, then then you, you learn this. Everything like that is, is nurtured and learned. And not to say that I blame my parents for any of this whatsoever at all. That's absolutely not what I'm saying. Um, but it's just what happens, I think. But but then things go up and down and you know, you can you can learn a different way of being, but it, it kinda of takes a bit of awareness. I'm not saying you can make yourself happy by just being happy. That's not the way it happens, obviously, but it's a really difficult subject and I think that part of it is nature and part of it is nurture. Yeah, well you you can kind of um develop your own um not just coping mechanisms but triggers as well can't you you can I yeah, guess, sometimes see completely. stuff coming and um, now you have absolutely every right to to not answer any of the questions that i ask by the way so please feel free to say shut your face um but when you were younger and because you know my dad had uh severe mental health issues to the point where he died by suicide when i was oh, 19 um so i, I, I kind of get this and you know one thing I've realised as a survivor of suicide is that some of us are happy to talk about it and others don't want to talk about mm-hmm. it. My dad was um, very up and down, but always honest. And we had a very yeah. open relationship about absolutely everything in life, not just about him, um, frankly, being nuts sometimes. Um, but what was it like in your household? Was it something that you didn't talk about, something that you did, or just something that everybody acknowledged? I think we were all aware um, that it was a problem, um, but certainly not really discussed. Um, um, what was what go, what's going on with my dad? Obviously, I'm not going to go into because it's not my business, no, um, or not my stories to tell. Not my stories to tell, but it came out of like a, a military background, and it's the same with like World War One and World War Two veterans. Like they just don't talk about it, and it's only just kind of changing now within the military that you're encouraged to talk about it, but it's just swept under the carpet. And I think it was just, it's just kind of being held in the dark about a lot of things that I guess makes kind of like a disconnect. Mm -hmm. And then that's even more of a trigger for feeling lonely and depressed and anxious and all those things. Yeah, of course. And obviously I, I mean, I'm, I'm stereotyping here, so I might be completely wrong, but your dad will be a man of a certain age who was in the military in a very masculine environment, I guess. Yeah. So, you know, that for, for, like you said, you know, it's not for us to discuss him, but for him to be dealing with that whilst having a family to look after as well must have been really challenging. And for you guys yeah. to live in that environment must have also been really challenging. Yeah. Yeah, it, it's it's just... It's a vicious circle, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And, um, and And what about kind of as you grew older so you said that you've always felt like you've had some sort of depression or or issues with your mental health do do you remember an age where you realized it was happening or is it something that you've just kind of always had but you only learned that you had it at a a certain point I remember people always saying to me that I was quite chirpy until I was pre like 
pre-teens, early teens, and then I just regressed into myself and I never like felt like I knew how to be happy. I never, I really struggled with knowing what hobbies I enjoyed, but I think that was actually more of a problem with um, the availability of things to do in Dover and Deal. It's just not a town that has a lot going on, um, mm -hmm. or towns, plural. So um, it's, that's maybe more of a societal thing. Um, so yeah, it's just been since my early teens that I've sort of on and off diagnosis of it. I, I have never been on medication until early 2016 when I met Mike. I went on them just before I met my husband um, after a really, really bad breakup. And I'd moved to Glasgow and I knew no one and I was really isolated again and I had no friends there to no one. Like, I didn't have my network to rely on. And that's the first time I got put on medication and it, it was a lifesaver. So it's just been something that I had to try and throughout university learn how to kind of be happy and mm. be happy with my life. And, and part of that really helped with the cycling and that kind of coincided with me feeling like I was in a really good place. And then I moved to Glasgow and I ruined it all. So. <laughs> I, I kind of feel stupid for asking this, given that you've cycled around the world and done amazing things. So I think the answer is going to be no, but has your mental health ever made you feel like you can't do something? All the time, every day. <laughs> Even though you've ridden around um, the world? Yeah. Um, but the way that my brain works, I actually had a panic attack at my uh, running club the other day because I started having intrusive thoughts. And this, was, this is what happens. I'm a bit slower than those people. I'm rubbish at what I'm doing. Oh, my God, I should just go home and start just hurting myself. And that's where it, like... And I, and I shocked myself into a panic attack when that is like that thought process mm -hmm. that might be a bit triggery to people, but, um, it all like that, it's that when I, like you said, I've, I've done a lot of cycling and I've, I've, I've done, I, I know I can go a long way for a long period of time, but I know also know that my, my disadvantage is that I'm not very quick at running, yeah. <laughs> but my brain then went, yeah, but you're rubbish at everything because of that. And yeah. It, it, it's, a bit, it's a struggle all the time and just because you found that exercise helps your mental health it doesn't mean you can just like tick a box draw a line underneath it and, and focus on some other part of your life and never think about it again because it's like a constant ongoing I wouldn't say battle because I think that is too aggressive but like a constant acknowledgement that you've got to work at it yeah and at any given point you can have um, you know three four five good weeks and then all of a sudden there's a bad week and you feel like You've not just wasted that bad week, but actually, although other weeks were bad, it's just that you felt like they were good and they're not. And then it just kind of snowballs, exactly. doesn't it? Yeah. I mean, my brother, okay. um, who's had mental health issues for, for quite some time, um, he came to live with me a couple of years ago. And he's a fairly handy rugby player, you know, likes to drink, sociable guy and all of that. And I thought to settle him in because he'd moved 200 miles south to live down here and, and didn't know anyone. Mm -hmm. I thought I'll take him to my old rugby club and, you know, I'll drop him off at training. He can have a game and all of that sort of stuff. And I was, you know, I was selling it to him and he's like, yeah, yeah, great idea, great idea. It took us four weeks of going and sitting in the car park before he even got out of the car because every time yeah. he, as he called it, bottled it. And I didn't see it like that at all and I could totally understand it. But he was so overwhelmed by this idea that, Although these people were doing something that he knew inside out, he wasn't good enough to be there, even though he was a handy rugby player. And these are a bunch of fat old men that I used to play rugby with. But it took him that long. And then once he got onto the pitch, absolutely fine. But it's getting over that threshold, isn't it? Completely. 
yeah and there were times on on the bike trip that i was getting oh my goodness australia it's just a whole whole heap of mess but i did it <laughs> it's one of those type two things of fun especially once you like once you're there and you've done it it might be hard at the time but you look back and did you ever almost give it. up oh uh yeah twice what happened and um, what what made you stop was that kind of uh you know having a rational discussion thing because i mean i also frankly i want to ask you if you had any massive rows because i love <laughs> a, a chat about a row as well oh i'm sorry we, we get on too well we don't argue oh. <laughs> I'm, I'm serious we don't we're just not those kind of couple um but we, we, like, we had disagreements but yeah. we, we're not kind of shouty people yeah um but the, the first time was in australia um australia is just I, I just oh my goodness we, so we were there in summer and we knew that that was going to be you know hot fine we've done 40 degrees in china but the wind is what they don't tell you about before you go and it's like what we think of a gale here is like 30 mile an hour winds that is just the everyday in australia right. yeah out in the outback so but we were at the wrong time of year for the direction we were going. Like prevailing winds there are serious things. So we had a headwind for three months. That is terrible like, planning. Who planned that? Why yeah. didn't you travel well, uh, west? <laughs> <laughs> we knew it was going to be windy, but you don't think of it being constant 30 mile an hour winds. Like, yeah. So you have the flat and you have desolation. Like there's nothing. Um, and then there might be like a day and a half between these roadhouses which is just a gas station with a restaurant and maybe a few places you can stay in a campsite so you have to carry enough water and then your bike's heavier which means you travel slower so you might need more provisions for a few more days so it took, it took us uh, an extra three days to cross this central part of australia that so we took three weeks but three days longer than we planned um because of, and that's purely because of the wind yeah so up until this point we knew how far we could cycle and how long it would particularly take us every day but it just like doubled and so we were cycling for longer each day which meant we needed more food but that meant your bike was heavier and all these things that came together including all the dead kangaroos on the side of the road that smell is i can't even describe but it's like a constant because there's a dead kangaroo every 10 meters and that's not an exaggeration um and then you've got just the heat it got up to about 47 right, and that's basically cooking those kangaroos as well i guess yeah yeah, My word. So all these things come together after three weeks of cycling from, it's, it's called the Nullarbor, so it's, it's the air highway uh, is the only road that goes along the very bottom coast of Australia between a town called Norseman and a town called Seduna, but that continues to a place called Port Augusta, and Port Augusta is a town which happens to be quite often the most cited for the highest temperature, if you like Google, like earlier this year they were talking about the highest temperatures in Australia, and Port Augusta is just the one that gets right. the most temperature. So anyway, we were half a day out from there and I just had a complete meltdown, like a complete tantrum in this sheep station that let us camp there. Um, and I just shouted the worst swear word into the outback and just screamed it at like, the top of my lungs. Are we talking because... C-word here? Are we, yeah. Are we in yeah, C-word yeah. territory? We're in C-word territory. Like, that's wow. totally normal in Australia. No one but an island, but apart from <laughs> that, it was really loud. Um, so, uh, and that was because... It was really windy. The tent nearly blew away and my bike fell over. That was like the trigger. That, yeah. that was me hitting like the wall after the wall after the wall that you push through. It yeah. was my absolute limit. Yeah. And, it, um, it, and I was just like, I can't do another month and a half of this to get to Brisbane. I can't. Do I did. But 
that was like the point where because it is such a long time isn't it to be you know doing what effectively is the same thing you know over and you know those extremes of conditions must be awful we get it down here you know in Worthing it it regularly hits 18 degrees in the summer um (laughs) and and the wind sometimes gusts at 22 um (laughs) so you know I'm with you I totally understand (laughs) oh it's um it it was such a huge test of my endurance and mental capability and And character building I imagine I mean you you must feel yeah like stronger a lot of the time now than you ever could have been because you endured it but I have to remind myself of it because I'm now so detached that was last year I've it's a type two fun thing I look back at Australia being some of the best memories because it was so horrifically hard but the fact that I did it, I have to sometimes sit there at work when I'm, I'm frustrated with something or I find something difficult I'm like I've cycled across Australia I can do this tiny thing but it, I have to remind myself of it and that's part of uh, the mental block that I get sometimes yeah and what about um post-trip come downs do, have you struggled mm. with your mental health since because you do something so incredible and then you get back to what effectively is fair, you know, mundanity. I mean, I'm sure you have a lovely life, but you know, you're it's, not, yeah, you're not cycling contested. around the world every day, are you? Yeah, no, we, we've really struggled. Um, it was really difficult to, to come back to living in a house, not living in a tent or sort of going to different ho- hotels every day. Um, we, we, I, one of the weirdest things is I struggle wearing jeans now because it feels so restrictive. Yeah. Having spent a year and a half in just, shorts like cotton or lycra shorts um if only you could get then, hold of a high quality um fine. cycling <laughs> garment made of merino wool <laughs> it is yeah i mean and that but that is uh it has helped working back in an industry that wasn't my previous job i've yeah. completely changed so it feels like a new start but but even things you know paying bills and having a mobile phone that i have to pay for monthly and um not having those endorphins rush every day is it was it's it comes and goes but it still does come and go um and we're because we're buying a house we can't we're still living like we have no money mm-hmm. so we can't do these little extra things like go for a weekend away in the highlands to go hiking because it's like oh fuel costs we can't because we're buying a house so which is a great 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 thing and a wonderful business bit to be in it just means it doesn't make those post-trip blues any easier because yeah. we can't help them by doing little adventures we kind of we're brought up in life to um make sacrifices all the time aren't we and i guess a trip around the world effectively for for the two of you is uh with the greatest respect an entirely selfish thing because you can do what you want when you want how you want and now you're suddenly confined by what other people need from you and that wasn't the case for a year and a half yeah, yeah. That, if we didn't want to talk to anyone, we'd just turn the phone off. Yeah, so. exactly, exactly. And, and what about um, before we end? I'm interested in, in what next. You know, have you got more challenges? Um, where does life take you in the next few years? I've, I'm considering a challenge next year, but I cannot tell, talk about it in case it doesn't happen. Then I'll feel really bad about it. Um, but right now, I, I want to just focus on being able to run a bit better. Mm-hmm. Um, changing things up uh we did i did get a bit fed up of cycling that's not like a permanent feeling we went out on the bikes yesterday and i just absolutely loved it but um i just kind of want to do something different for a little while and i just want to be able to like run a half marathon or a marathon or something that's kind of like a short term within the next year getting to that point 
longer term I want to be doing ultra long distance cycling sort of various events that go on around the world um different countries and within the UK I just want to it's it's a really strange I don't know why but it's a really strange thing to want to push myself to those limits again I totally get you doing that there's and 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 people often ask me why yeah we we just don't I, you know it takes a certain type of person to want to bury themselves to the to the deepest darkest yeah. part of their soul and and come out the other side um i totally yeah. get that and, and many of our listeners will also get that as well um I, I i think it and you and your story are absolutely incredible um and you know i mean you're only episode three of our podcast but <laughs> i'm already thinking you know how do we get more similar people to do this yeah. and one of the amazing things when I put a call out for people to be a part of this is that we had, you know, 50, 60 people get in touch to say, hey, I'll, I'll take part if you want me to. I haven't really done an awful lot. And then they send me a little biog and I'm like, you're saying you haven't done a lot. <laughs> Shit, yeah. this is, you know, there's some, some wonderful, wonderful stories out there. I know that people are going to listen to this and be blown away and, and also have it resonate with them for someone to have spoken so openly and honestly as well. So thank you so much for, for taking the time to, to talk to me about this. Um, and, um, you know, hopefully we'll be able to catch up again in the future when whichever yeah. challenge it is that you're thinking of doing that aren't going <laughs> to tell us about um, happens. So, um, yeah, Helen, thank you so much for being a part of this. And um, if there's anything we can thank do you. in the future for you and, and to throw you support, just let us know. Oh, thank you so much. It was an absolute pleasure. Thank you. All right. Thanks so much, Helen. Cheers. Take care. Thanks. Bye. OK, so... Um, I've just put the phone down on uh, on Helen and um, I'm pretty blown away by that. Um, I'm not going to say too much because um, this is definitely the longest 15 minutes of your life. As I'm looking at the timer, it's just past 49 minutes. So I'm sure you're not going to be bothered by the fact that we've gone way over time on that because that was just brilliant to hear. I kind of regret now not taking advantage of my youth so much and being young and free and available to go and do whatever I want to do. And I hear stories like that. And what I'm basically thinking now is when I retire um, and Claire makes me enough money to retire from this business, then I'm just going to go and travel the world because that that sounds absolutely incredible. We need more people like Helen. We've had a huge number of people get back to us about being on the podcast and and we want you guys to keep coming and keep fueling this, this fire that we've got. And if you want to be a part of it, just tweet us or Instagrammers or Facebookers or whatever at we are run things um, or send us an email to info at runthings.co.uk we'd love to have you on board and um, and taking part um, don't forget the run things run club launches proper on the 1st of may um, you can take part in that and we'd love you to and we're working on developments for the run around the world in the summer as well um, that's it from me hopefully this is recorded hopefully claire can edit it Um, and hopefully more and more of you will keep listening. Thank you so much for your time.